This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. I'm Jackie. I bring years of experience in law, policy, and energy to provide an independent view for solutions that bring America greater energy security. I want you to know from the outset, this show is neither a subsidiary of nor a paid advertisement for any energy corporation. All opinions expressed are my own. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Join us online at JackieDaly.com, on Facebook, and on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show, and on demand 24 hours a day, seven days a week, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, where you can hear all the past shows. Okay, so, you know, I started reading work by this economist named Ed Hers down at the University of Houston. And he was proposing that we actually think radically differently about oil and gas and how we approach this in terms of policy vis-a-vis other countries. You know, if I have a favorite area of emphasis, it's geopolitics. Let me, let me just hit you with one one fact that I learned from reading Ed Hers. First of all, do you, would you, how would you feel about the fact that you will pay an additional $50 per barrel of oil, okay, which translates to an additional $1.25 per gallon at the pump for every barrel that's coming out of the Middle East because of the premium placed on the cost of that oil because of the wars that are constantly waging in the Middle East. In other words, if your energy supply is coming from the Middle East, you have to secure that energy supply, either for yourself or from your enemies. And it costs a lot of money to do that, and it costs lives and time and energy and and the wounded and the families and everyone. You all know the destruction of warfare. Well, I began thinking about this. Most of us want to buy American, don't we? Wouldn't you prefer to buy your gasoline from American energy producers right down the highway in Midland, Texas, or down in the Eagleford Shale Formation in South Texas, instead of buying it from, I don't know, the Qataris, you know, or let's, let's get a better example, the Iranians, the House of Saud, you know, um, I mean, Nigerians, Libyans. Okay, nothing against anyone, but frankly, pound for pound, I'd rather support my own folks and my own economy, right? It's nearby. They don't fund terrorism like certain states do. Who wouldn't prefer to buy American when it comes to gasoline? Well, you're going to prefer it even more when, when you hear all the facts surrounding it. Basically, that you know, according to the, the Costs of War project by the Watson Institute at Brown University that economist Hers is citing to, the cost of U.S. wars in the Middle East is $4.4 trillion, trillion with a T. It's the same as $50 per barrel for every barrel of oil consumed in the U.S. since 9-11. And right now, that is being buried in our national debt and future obligations. Your grandkids are going to pay for it. But if you've been paying for it and I had been paying for it in real time as we incurred it, we would have paid $1.25 more at the pump per gallon for the past 13 years. That's the real cost of buying Middle East oil or conflict oil as opposed to buying from your own folks. If, if, in, a, if in a perfect world or even a, maybe a realistic world, 
We can instead buy from our own folks. That is what economist Ed Hers is talking about. He's talking about essentially restricting imports of oil from, I don't know if it's certain other countries or all other countries, I mean, to include Canada. We're going to talk with him and, and figure out exactly what he means by that. But listen, you know me, I'm an executive at a free market think tank. I'm not one for quotas. I'm not one for restricting trade. Um, you know, under most circumstances, you're going to have a really hard time convincing me that that makes sense. Well, what Ed Hers and three other experts have done in a series of papers is attempt to make the case, not just that it's a national security argument, but that when you quantify the true cost of Middle East oil, as I just did for you, and, and that doesn't even mention the cost of transporting it across the ocean and protecting it from pirates and everything else, when you add up the real cost, we would actually save money by restricting imports. And, and, and it would be a better policy for us all the way around. We wouldn't be funding people who fund terrorism against us and, and other side benefits that should be obvious to you by now. So joining us to make this case from the University of Houston is economist Ed Hers. Mr. Hers, welcome to the Jackie Daly Show. Thank you, Jackie. It's really good to have you here. And listen, I read several pieces that you've put together, things you have published. And I have to say, you introduced so many really, really fascinating ideas that I, I couldn't put this stuff down. You know, I, I don't always agree with your conclusions or your means and methods, but you have, we, we would share a lot of goals. And I, I clearly see where you're coming from. And what surprised me about your argument was that you were able to make a dollars and cents argument, not just a strategic argument, not just a national security argument, but a dollars and cents argument for why it would make sense, even for consumers or the American public or taxpayer in the long haul, to uh, to restrict the import of foreign oil. So let's just start with your, your argument. When you say foreign oil, are you talking about OPEC or are you also talking about Canada, you know, uh, the North Sea, other friendlies who also sell oil? Well, really, we're talking about oil from uh, folks who aren't necessarily our friends. Um, we include oil from Canada. Um, I guess if Mexico ever got to the point where they were a net exporter of crude, we would include them as, as friendly. Um, but certainly we include Canada, our closest ally. Um, we are the natural market for the Canadian crude oil, and uh, we are in favor of the Keystone Pipeline for strategic issues. And, and frankly, on an environmental uh, discussion, the Keystone Pipeline is a net win to the United States versus bringing the same grade of crude oil from Saudi Arabia, for example. Right, right. So, okay. So, we're when we say we're you're talking about sort of you know basically banning foreign oil. What we really mean is oil from OPEC and maybe from Russia. You're you're saying we we're not including in that North America, so Canada, Mexico, where possible. Um, right. So, okay. And so, and so this is this is an old policy. Um, uh, the very first oil import quota uh, or restriction came from General Eisenhower, of course, when he was president. He had fought for oil supplies during World War II, and he saw what the, the huge discoveries of, of cheap oil in the Middle East would do to the U.S. industry. Uh, he did not want the United States dependent upon foreign supplies or crude just from a, a military uh, uh, strategic issue, not so much the economics of it, but, but he knew that uh, cheaper oil would literally flood the U.S. market and severely handicap domestic production. Let me stop and you for just a second. Let me stop you for just a second. Um, I think what's interesting about Eisenhower is, as you say, he's a general, and he's the last president we have had who is who is a general. 
And so he would naturally see energy in terms of the war he had just fought, World War II. And as you say, he spent most of his efforts during that war cutting off uh, the Axis powers from having the energy they needed. That's, that was the end game. Well, That's absolutely true. Without, without oil, the, the Axis was, was toast. And in, and in fact, Japan declared war on the United States right after we embargoed uh, the export of oil to Japan. Right. And, and this element of energy in warfare, whether it's oil or before that, you know, like the Brits relied on coal, for example, before they were relying on Middle East oil militarily. The, the element of energy in warfare is very, I think, deliberately downplayed. And I really think it's done a disservice because we're not being honest. It's, it's not about, for example, you know, in Iraq, it's not about stealing oil. God knows we've been paying for our Middle East oil big time. As I just said in the introduction to this segment, we're paying a huge premium on that which comes from the Middle East because of the security. But I, I found it fascinating that, of course, it would be Eisenhower who would take this approach because not only had he basically fought the war for the purpose of securing uh, energy supply from the enemy, then he refused in 1956, as you point out in your piece, to join Britain and France in their war to retain the Suez Canal. And why did they care? Because 80% of Europe's crude oil passed through that canal. And so if you look at all the, you know, all the deployments, if you go to Washington, D.C. and look at the monuments, the places where the U.S. military has had to deploy, so often we're talking about energy hotspots, energy transport spots, places where the world's energy supply exists. And I think this is what is missing in the, the people who would oppose you, Mr. Herz. Uh, there are a lot of people who would not agree with you on restricting the import of oil because they want to treat oil like it's uh, any other product like it's, you know, the manufacturer of automobiles or plastic cups or handbags or something. But well, it's not. But, it's a strategic commodity. But there are import restrictions on those items. I mean, we have a 25% import tariff on light trucks. We have well, look, yes, a 35% but, import quota or tariff on Stilton cheese. Uh, sure, uh, we have but, import but a lot tariff of people, on wine, cigars. Well, I think, I think you're forfeiting the argument, though, here, because my, my argument would be I wouldn't agree with tariffs for any of those things. I think they're purely protectionist and, and don't really serve any purpose except protecting certain industries or groups that lobby Capitol Hill. But here we're talking about oil. I mean, we're talking about I mean, nobody's going to go to war over Stilton cheese. No one's going to go to war over these things that you talked about. Oil is is the lifeblood of our way of life. I mean, we can't continue existing or feeding everyone or delivering health care without oil or at least natural gas, to, you know, hydrocarbons, let's say. So I guess that's the part of your argument that really, really uh, made a lot of right. sense to me was looking at the strategic nature of oil visa as opposed to other things. And so that because, you know, look, I'm in a free market think tank. I ha- I'm the only I'm an army of one making your argument sometimes. And it's, it's a very lonely place to be, and you've probably experienced this too. Most people are not going to feel good about uh, quotas or, or tariffs or restrictions on trade. But I think you're offering up something unique, uh, which is that you know not only is it strategic, but there are costs built into it, such as the $4.4 trillion that the Middle East wars have cost us that you, won't, that you don't have with Stilton cheese, right? I mean, these are, these are very difficult to compare. That's and absolutely so, true. Absolutely right. true. And, and so what we've attempted to do is take a look at the entire system of, of crude oil, the crude oil market, uh, and show what the cost-benefit analysis is for the United States. 
And, you know, when oil was at $100 a barrel, that's that's when our first paper came out. It was over $100 a barrel. Mm-hmm. We uh, were, were uh, castigated and vilified for uh, promoting what we said was, you know, an import quota restriction. And uh, many of the those in the oil patch, uh, free market uh, proponents said, well, this is this is not a free market approach. And um, we pointed out, of course, that the oil market is controlled by a cartel. And, <laughs> and the cartel acts in its own national interest or in the national interest of its individual members. You know, why the heck can't the United States act in its own national interest? And right. our primary concern was an interruption in the supply of crude to the world market. You know, 18 to 20 million barrels a day come through the Strait of Hormos. You know, there's a reason the United States has its four wooden hulled vessels there. They're minesweepers. There's a reason the Chinese Navy undertook maneuvers with the Iranian Navy 18 months ago in the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, it's a narrow strait. Blocking that strait at the time of our first paper, we, we estimated would lead to a price spike of almost $400 a barrel. You know, this $400 would be a, huge, a barrel? Yeah, this would be a huge dislocation, uh, not just for oh. the United States, but for anyone. Okay, I just just to put that in perspective for people, uh, what what would what do you think the price would be at the pump if if oil went up to four hundred dollars a barrel? Oh gracious, uh, you know that's ten, twelve, thirteen dollars yeah. a gallon at the pump. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, hold that thought. We're going to take a break real quick, and when we come back. We'll pick this right back up. We're talking with Ed Hers. He is an economist at the University of Houston. We're talking about his idea to restrict oil imports into the United States. We'll be right back. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and we're back with Ed Hers. He is an economist at the University of Houston, and he has written a number of pieces that you can find in the Oil and Gas Investor and elsewhere, arguing that the United States should reconsider its old policy that we had under the Eisenhower administration of basically imposing uh, limits or you know, almost a complete ban to the import of foreign oil from certain countries, not from Canada, not from Mexico but basically from OPEC and hostile countries. So we've been talking about the built-in costs of oil that comes from these regions. That is, you know, you have to experience apparently warfare in these regions every so often. It's just unavoidable. We haven't figured out how to prevent it. And that has cost the United States $4.4 trillion, which equates to $50 a barrel on top of the price of each barrel of oil we have used here from that region since since uh, 9-11. So, Mr. Hers, you were just talking about the fact that one benefit, uh, and, and I don't, as I said, I don't fully agree with all of your methods and ideas here, but you have a lot of interesting points you're making throughout these articles, um, such as if 
for example, a hostile power succeeded in blocking the Straits of Hormuz in the Middle East, through which a very significant portion of the world's oil supply passes each day, you thought you, you, you all did the calculations and found that this would, would spike the price of oil to $400 a barrel. To put that in context, it's $50 right now uh, on average uh, over the past week or so. So just multiply how many times more you'd be paying for gasoline uh, at the pump. Now, let me give you the counter argument, Mr. Hurst, that I heard on this very point from John Tamney over at Forbes. I had him on the show. Obviously, very, very, very free market. And I brought up the Straits of Hormuz in this very point. And he said to me, that is not going to happen. He said that 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 has not happened. Everyone talks about the Straits of Hormuz, but it has not happened. And it's not going to happen because the oil keeps flowing no matter what's going on. You just made a, a powerful point before the break, which is, well, if everyone knows that, why is the U.S. had a huge, very expensive military presence in that area for as long as we can remember as, in my lifetime? And, and now the Chinese are doing the same thing. If, if, we, if we all don't anticipate any problems, why is that happening? So I think you're making a very powerful point because the fact that something hasn't happened in the past few decades or, you know, 10 years doesn't mean we can predict the ways of the Iranian leadership uh, or the House of Saud if they decide to, you know, have a dust up with the Iranians. Who knows what can happen with us? So you, you give a good example of the uh, price disruptions in both directions over the past several decades. And you believe that this can be avoided. Um, so explain how that would work. If, the, if, the, if OPEC wanted to do economic warfare by either spiking the price really high, like they did before the 2008 financial meltdown, or dropping it super low, which you know, kills US production. Are you, do you envision a world where, because America is not permitting them to, um, to import here, that our price just stays the same, come what may, no matter what some terrorist blows up in the Middle East, no matter what the House of Saud wants to do? I mean, is that where this is going? It would certainly be less effect. Um, you know, we advocated a, a gradual shift to this policy over a, a number of years, um, uh, basically re increasing the quota from year to year until the United States um, became fairly independent. This would, of course, increase the price domestically. But you know, going back to Eisenhower, you have to recall that when he imposed the quota, the world price of oil fell by more than half. And OPEC formed the next couple of weeks to combat Eisenhower's policy. And so during that period from 1959 to 1974, the domestic price of crude oil in the United States was roughly double the world price. And, and that's what we advocate here. It, it's a way of protecting the market, ensuring our, our own supplies, and it insulates us from uh, either predatory pricing, as we've experienced from OPEC the last 18, 24 months, or from monopolistic pricing, as we've experienced in, in the other parts of the cycle. Uh, they operate in their own national interest. Um, they have put the, the high-cost producers out of business in the United States, and, and that's a lot of the shale plays. And the, uh, the challenge with this is that that's also taken about 250,000 jobs and hundreds of billions of dollars of capital from uh, the, the U.S. economy. Uh, Fed Chair Janet Yellen has pointed out that the uh, decline in the oil price has had a negative impact on gross domestic product. Um, it's had more of an impact 
in a negative way than the reduced price of fuel at the pump. You know, 75% of the consumers of petroleum for transportation don't just go out and consume more because the price of gasoline is lower. UPS, Coca-Cola, Budweiser, Federal Express, the city bus company, uh, the trucking companies, they don't go out and, and schedule extended vacations just because the price of crude is down. They're going to spend that, that gallon of fuel day in, day out, no matter what the price is. And so the the net gain to the economy of having uh, a very low crude oil price, I think, is more than offset by the loss of jobs and the loss of capital, the loss of tax revenues, and, and the loss of industry in many of these regions across the country where there was just a huge renaissance. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, hold that thought. We're going to take a break real quick. And when we come back, we'll pick this right back up. We're talking with Ed Hers. He is an economist at the University of Houston. We're talking about his idea to restrict oil imports into the United States. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Jackie Daly Show, and we're back with Ed Hers. He is an economist at the University of Houston, and he has written a number of pieces that you can find in the Oil and Gas Investor and elsewhere, arguing that the United States should reconsider its old policy that we had under the Eisenhower administration of basically imposing uh, limits or, you know, almost a complete ban to the import of foreign oil from certain countries, not from Canada, not from Mexico, but basically from OPEC and hostile countries. Right. Well, and I can imagine, I I know exactly where you run up against resistance in your plan uh, to restrict the import of crude oil. And I've seen this from Democrats and Republicans they're going to say, okay, but we have to concede on the front end. We can't argue with the fact that it will raise the price of gasoline at the pump, and so therefore politically, they're just not going to come on board. I mean, they're, they're, but, but you, make, you make the case that, and this is hard to make to the public because they only see the price. You know, you make the case, yes, that is true, but you're still paying less in the long run than you are when you're importing oil from the Middle East that you have to secure. I fleshed that out a little bit in the last segment. Now, make that case. How do you know? Explain, I guess, let's put it this way. Explain how that extra $50 a barrel we've been paying for Middle East oil is buried in the debt that our kids and grandkids are going to pay. How, How does that work? Well, certainly. Um, you know, there are a number of, of Washington insiders and, and uh, um, political, you know, heavyweights dating from Eisenhower, uh, Kissinger, uh, Alan Greenspan, who pointed out the whole reason we're in the Middle East is because of oil. And Eisenhower re- rejected that with the uh, invasion of the Sinai in 1956. If we, we even let ISIS produce oil and sell it to the world market. Uh, and, and that continued until the attacks on Paris. 
And then the French kindly took over and began to eliminate ISIS access to the world oil markets. Um, it's $4.4 we spent in the Middle East since 9-11. Uh, the, the Cost of War Project has laid it out. Bill Nordhaus, the uh, Yale professor, uh, estimated it would be $2.2 trillion before it. Uh, we're now up to 4.4. This has been covered by you know, several Nobel winners. You know, quite frankly, uh, we're not going to solve any of the issues in the Middle East. These these battles have been raging um, before religion, uh, pre pre Islam, pre Christianity. Uh, you know, the issue in the Middle East is who owns the oil and who's going to get paid for it. And uh, we wind up taking sides, you know, first one side and then the other. This $4.4 trillion is essentially a $50 a barrel tax that we have, we have put onto the national debt. But for the oil in particular, just out of the Middle East, it's $200 a barrel. That, that you know, the $50 yeah. is, is against every barrel we've consumed. Right, right. But if you just look at it against oil, what our, our defense umbrella has cost us, or the direct subsidy we have given to our allies in the Middle East is $200 a barrel for every barrel that they have produced since 9 Unbelievable. Unbelievable. When we could be buying from the guys down in Midland. <laughs> it's enough to make you sick. Okay, we're going to take a break real quick, and we'll be right back to continue with Ed Hers. He is an economist at the University of Houston. We're talking about his plan, along with a few other guys from Yale, to call for the, uh, the restriction of the import of oil into the United States from foreign countries, excepting Canada and a few friendlies. All right, we'll be right back. listening to the Jackie Daly Show. Join us online at JackieDaly.com, on Facebook, and on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show. And now you can hear the show on demand 24 hours a day, seven days a week on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. All the past shows are there. So we're continuing our discussion with Ed Hers, and he is an economist at the University of Houston. And he and a group of three other guys have written a series of papers making the case for why they think that the Eisenhower-era policy of restricting the import of foreign oil should be reinstated, accepting Canada and a few friendlies. Okay, so, Mr. Hers, I want to touch on a few things that you had to say. I mean, the first is that a lot of people would say that the United States cannot be energy independent. It's not possible because world uh, oil prices are, are global. There's, as you say, the rule of one price. Um, now, in your proposal, you're calling for um, what's really not U.S. energy independence. This would really be North American energy independence because you're talking about Canada, a major producer of the heavy crude that we actually can use in our refineries. You're also including Mexico. So I, I assume that what you would foresee then would be basically two 
world oil prices and sort of a North American um, OPEC, almost. Am I characterizing that accurately? Well, certainly there'd be two segments of the market. And uh, as we envisioned it, if you, if you went back to the Eisenhower era, the, the price of crude in North America would be significantly higher than OPEC. But, but of course, OPEC would have the ability to restrict production and increase its price to its main customers as well. You know, it's a 94 million barrel a day market. The United States consumes approximately 17 to 18 million barrels a day of that. Um, you know, it's, it, we produce approximately nine and a half million barrels a day, um, although that's going down. And, uh, you know, we would increase production. Uh, we would have a higher price. It would bring the shale plays back into a, a profitable position. We'd reemploy people. And, and frankly, you know, the secondary benefits would be we would increase the price of transportation again uh, domestically, and that would encourage, without direct subsidies, um, alternative modes of transportation, more mass transit. Um, you know, perhaps we'd have more opportunities for electric vehicles to become. Uh, 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 you know, the mode of transportation, at least for one out of every two cars in our garage. Um, so, so you think uh, that was, uh, you think that would be necessary because that we wouldn't have the ability to produce enough fuel for North America within North America? Did I miss that point? You know, potentially over time, um, you know, certainly we have tremendous resources that we have yet to tap. We have not gone into the uh, tar sands in Utah, and, uh, of course, the Canadians are well advanced in their harvesting or, or you know, retrieval of oil from the uh, tar sands in Alberta. Right. Okay, so let me ask a secondary question, and maybe this is not a fair question since you're an economist and you're not necessarily a foreign policy guy. But I guess my thought about this would be, since a lot of people seem to like this idea, frankly, for a lot of reasons. I mean, a, a lot of us would like to end the largest wealth transfer in human history from us to the Middle East, you know, which they then use uh, some of those countries to to fund uh, terrorism. Everyone would love to see that happen. But my thought then to myself is this. OK, even if that were possible and if and everyone were on board to make this happen, um, in terms of policy, can we still afford to pull out of the Middle East even if we're not using or needing their energy supply? Because what you know, the, the question then becomes, what are we leaving open for our enemies? <laughs> and we still have them even now. Uh, even you know, I mean, so some that you could make an argument that we would still have to be involved. Uh, in the Middle East because of all the other moving parts, uh, you know, that would impact us indirectly. And although although I think you probably make a strong point, right, if, if you don't need them, if we don't need them to continue functioning day to day as a first world country, an industrialized advanced country, I bet you will commit. Well, this will be more like the the Japanese commitment to the Iraq war, right? We're showing up and we're contributing with eight troops vis-a-vis <laughs> -vis the United States, hundreds of thousands of troops. So um, at least that's what I would foresee. But but have you 
Have you written about this? Have you thought about what U.S. involvement in the Middle East would look like even if North America were energy independent? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, okay. you know, you're right. That's a foreign policy question. Um, you know, certainly we can look at um, uh, the lack of success we've had in the Middle East since 9-11 and the, the complete shambles. Uh, uh, you know, we have been in a, a dependent position uh, with the Middle East with regard to uh, safeguarding the oil supplies, not only for ourselves, but for the rest of the world. If we didn't need that oil, um, then I think we might have a, um, a different level of bargaining power with all of the parties in the Middle East. I think you're exactly right. Okay. Well, how about uh, explaining explaining for people who are not energy people, right? We're talking to an audience who that this is not a business-to-business kind of show. This is a, you know, I bring people like you to, to the world, to people who are not necessarily in the energy space of the oil patch explain why uh the oil price is set on the world scale now because you say the price of fuel in the at the pump in houston is set by the demand for fuel from asia not by cheap supply from the bakken for example I- explain why that's true yeah, why that, or why that has to be true that's absolutely true because you know, the, the refinery manager in Texas has an opportunity to sell his gasoline to you in Dallas or to the uh, uh, gasoline station in Washington, D.C. at the end of the pipeline, or he can sell to the gas station in Tokyo, um, you know, plus transit. And so it's the marginal buyer. You know, Tokyo has no supplies of crude oil. They have to buy everything. India is a, is a tremendous importer of crude. So so is China. Uh, and so the the domestic price of the United States really doesn't get very far away from what the marginal consumer, the last consumer in, in Tokyo will pay for gasoline. You know, certainly in an economic downturn, that price will fall, especially if it's a global downturn and there's an oversupply. But for the, you know, the last 20 years, the United States has been exporting products, and uh, the price that's, that's bid by the gas station in Tokyo you know, helps set the price domestically for us. Okay. We're talking with Ed Hers, and he is an economist at the University of Houston. And we're talking with him about his idea, uh, along with a few others, to reinstate the restriction on the import of crude oil from hostile countries, which in fact would be a reinstatement of President Eisenhower's policy. And notably, Eisenhower is our last president who was also a general. I began thinking to myself, I mean, that that certainly has to color the way you view energy if you've actually participated in a a modern war. Um, I thought, how many of our presidents have been generals? And I wonder what their policies were vis-a-vis energy. Okay, here's the answer. Here's the answer. Twelve U.S. presidents were generals. Starting with, see if you know this. Chase, do you know this? Brittany, you know this? Okay. General, I can only name, I can only name, like, I could count them on one hand. I'm embarrassed to admit this. General Washington. General Andrew Jackson. General William Henry Harrison. 
uh, Zachary Taylor, uh, General Franklin Pierce, General Andrew Johnson, General Grant, General Hayes, General Garfield, General Arthur, General Benjamin Harrison, and General Eisenhower. So do you see that it was all clustered there toward the beginning, the country's beginning? Back then, people really prized military leadership, and it really mattered. And interestingly, six of those guys are from Ohio, my home state. So it's just, you know, all the astronauts come from Ohio. Apparently, all the generals do, too, uh, who, who were president. But not since Eisenhower have you had a general as chief executive and chief of the military really calling the shots vis-a-vis energy security, which I think is fascinating. Um, unfortunately, General Petraeus didn't get to make his run uh, for the highest office. I often wonder what his policy would be, having had his experience in uh, you know, this century leading up our efforts on energy security. We've been talking with Ed Hers. He is an economist at the University of Houston. He has written a great deal in Oil and Gas Investor and elsewhere about his ideas for restricting oil imports. And while I am a free market gal, I'm even an executive at a free market think tank for crying out loud, I actually want to encourage you to read this because oil is a strategic commodity. It's not, as I said earlier, this isn't the manufacturer of automobiles and plastic cups and Jimmy Choo shoes. This is important stuff. If you can go to war over it, perhaps we should think about it differently. So, Mr. Hers, I think you've made a contribution to the literature for sure, and I want to have you back on at a future date to discuss a few more pieces I ran across that you wrote that I found provocative. So thank you so much for your time tonight. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. I'm Jackie. I bring years of experience in law, policy, and energy to provide an independent view for solutions that bring America greater energy security. I want you to know from the outset, this show is neither a subsidiary of nor a paid advertisement for any energy corporation. All opinions expressed are my own. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Join us online, JackieDaly.com, on Facebook and on Twitter, at Jackie Daly Show. And now, on demand, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can hear all of the past shows going back to about July 2015 on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Okay, have you heard of the Oil and Gas Asset Clearinghouse? Do you know what that is? It is the best place to buy and sell assets. It is the only broker-dealer to sell over $13.2 billion, that's billion with a B, as in bonanza, of oil and gas properties through live auction and negotiated sales. All right, so I'm talking about, and don't worry if you don't know what all this is, we're going to get to this in a minute, talking about operated and non-operated producing working interests, overrides, royalties, minerals, and non-producing leaseholds. You know what? One of my favorite thoroughbreds right now in the Kentucky scene is named overriding royalty. Do you know what an overriding royalty is? If you don't, you're going to know by the end of this segment, and you're going to wish you had one. It's a really big deal. 
Bottom line, 63,000 registered and approved buyers and sellers are on the oil and gas asset clearinghouse. If you don't know what this is, you're going to want to know. And joining us to explain this to us is Chase Morris. He is heading up business development for the oil and gas clearinghouse in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and Midland, basically North Texas, part of West Texas. And so this is his deal. He knows it forward, backward, inside out. Chase, welcome to the Jackie Daly Show. Thanks, Jackie. Glad to be here. Good to have you here. You know, I spoke with Ken Olive from Mm -hmm. the uh, Clearinghouse when I was in NAEP doing a TV pilot in February of 2015. So I learned a lot about what you were doing down there. But for people who don't know about this, I want them to understand what this is and what this isn't. Because let me just, let me start with a hypothetical, right? Let's assume you're little Jackie Daly from Appalachia. You don't have a lot of assets. You know, you, you've got 25, 50 grand. And you say to yourself, well, I think uh, oil and gas is on the upswing. I mean, the prices have been depressed for so long. Surely it's got, you know, going up and I should get involved somehow. Now, am I the kind of person who gets involved with oil and gas clearinghouse or do I need to call a stockbroker instead? I mean, what, what is, is there anything there for me? Do you have anything to offer me at the oil and gas clearinghouse? As Jackie Daly, the individual investor I, I would say call your stockbroker okay. find yeah I'm, I'm not gonna give you know um, stock tips or anything but no right I, I would say in, in, when what <laughs> we do we're selling here we're, we're, we're industry specific kind of business to business and and uh, we are um, helping oil and gas upstream companies make trades buy and sell uh, assets um, now that doesn't mean that that some of the folks who are, who are buying assets or buying interests in a royalty trust or, or um, uh, a working interest uh, asset aren't uh, aren't private individuals, but you know it's it it is through a, a you know generally an, an oil and gas operator. Right. Yeah. Well, because you say you know on right in on your, the front of your website, you're very clear. Sixty three thousand registered and approved approved buyers and sellers what's meant by approved uh, <clears throat> approved buyers and sellers are those that are um have uh, uh, their you know, financial history and background and operational history if they're an operator in the oil and gas in the oil patch um we have uh, vetted them out through a through a series of protocols um you to know, make to, sure to they're make able sure to that participate. They're legitimate, that yeah. they're a legitimate buyer. And when they, when they bid on an asset, they can, uh, they can close. Right. Excellent. Okay, so let's walk through it because for people who want to learn more about oil and gas and how it works, and, you know, I've got a lot of friends up in uh, my part of the world where I came from in Ohio. They're sitting on top of the Utica Shale Formation, some of them on the Marcellus. Sure. And they have people coming to the house and wanting to lease their land and that kind of thing. They're always asking me questions like I'm supposed to know something. And they're like, okay, you know, what is a working interest? What, what is it? What's this and that? What is a, what's an override? So let's just, let's just unpack this a little bit. Let's do some vocabulary for people who aren't in the energy world. Explain operated and non-operated producing working interests. What is that? Okay, so I, I've got a 
back up a little bit on that. Okay, so y- you want to know what a, an operated working interest is? Yes, let's just okay. start there. All right, operated working interest is an ownership interest in an oil and gas lease, okay, uh, that produces oil and gas. Um, and if it's an operated interest, you are an owner of the, the actual operating entity. So you are, if you're Exxon or Marathon, um, you are um, uh, an, an owner. Your interest is considered operated ownership, operated working interest. Your partners or investors on the property um, who, who joined with you to exploit the resources, the hydrocarbons, are your non-operated partners, and they could be in for you know half or more um, of the interest, but they are not in control of the operation. Um, so, bottom line, I, to to break that down, imagine Jackie Daly is not a poor girl from Appalachia, and she's actually got a few million to invest. That would be enough to kick in on a well, right? So, so I could actually have. I'm not the operator. I just want to throw money in and help them finance the situation and get some money back on the whole deal when it cashes out or when it makes money, if it makes money. So I'm the non-operating working interest there. Correct. Whereas Liberty Petroleum, if they're the operator and they're actually going to do the work uh, on the ground, you know, break ground on that well and actually make it all work and, and do the fracks and all that, they're the operator. Okay, everyone clear on that? All right, good. Okay, so let's talk Correct. about let's talk about the really exciting part. Define overriding royalty. That's what I want. Well, what, what, no, what, what you really want is uh, uh, mineral royalty. Of well, course. What you want is, is, is the royalty interest, which is uh, the actual ownership of the minerals in, in the ground. And that's, right. that's a very unique uh, uh, property that we have here in the United States. It's, it's unique to us. You can't, you can't go to uh, other countries and buy or own the actual minerals in the ground. Um, here, Historically, it, they belong to the king. In other exactly words, right. in, in most countries, crown, yes. right? it's, mm-hmm. it's a, in Canada, it's a crown royalty, right? So, um, here in the United States, uh, we can own the minerals under the ground that we uh, that we whether we own the surface or lease the surface, we can we can own the minerals, um, and the royalty is the uh, net payment paid to that. Uh, that royalty owner, the owner of the minerals, when your oil and gas company um, drills and exploits the hydrocarbons. Um, and, you know, their percentage of revenue is the first taken off the top. Um, and they don't have a cost basis. Uh, that's why I said if you want something, you want royalty. It's right? just checks in the mail, people. We, you know, <laughs> they call it mailbox money. Right. Right. <laughs> Right. It's what you have. You know, some some of my friends who who were lucky enough to inherit uh, land up in West Virginia, in the Marcellus. I mean, it's really simple. You know, you whatever you have uh, six family members who own this land or inherited a piece of the land, and voila, you know, if you lease the land uh, to the company to the when the landman comes, there's no one I'd rather see on my front porch step than a landman. It's not Ed McMahon. Forget about that. You want the landman, and uh, and voila. They're all driving new pickup trucks and building new houses. Uh, so, yeah, they—they they, that's right. They want—they uh, want you to lease 
your minerals to them. And what you want to do is is lease your minerals to a company, to an operator, or, or to a land company who's working with with an operator who is um, going to be aggressive on the drill bit. Uh, you don't want them to lease lease that land and sit on it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the the minerals in the ground and the royalties are great, um, but you don't get them until uh, they've been drilled and exploited and sold. Okay. So if you want to learn more about oil and gas asset clearinghouse, please go to www.ogclearinghouse.com www.ogclearinghouse.com We're going to take a break really quick and then we're going to come back and continue the conversation with Chase Morris the head of business development for the Dallas-Fort Worth area Midland area oil and gas clearinghouse. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Jackie Daly Show. Join us online, JackieDaly.com, on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show, and on demand at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. We're talking with Chase Morris, and he is the head of business development with the Oil and Gas Asset Clearinghouse. And we're talking about the fact that, first of all, they are the only broker dealer to sell over $13.2 billion billion with a B of oil and gas properties through both live auction and negotiated sales. Working interests, overrides, royalties, minerals, all of the above, 63,000 registered and approved buyers and sellers. So Chase, you say in your materials that you you guys are the guys that will find that one buyer that will pay more than any other. All right. Now, how can you guarantee that? How, how do you how do you do that? I know you can do it well, better than me, right. especially if I just got in the business. But how do you do it? Well, we, we can't guarantee anything, so that's the G word we we stay away from. But what <laughs> what what we do is we, we show a track record, we show a history history of being able to do that, and and it's um it's through the process of you know the network, the database of clients and companies that we work with, the process that we that we use uh, internally. Uh, managing data, our technical team is phenomenal, and 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 working with the client to uh, to analyze uh, assets and, and properties, look for uh, additional value, look for additional upside, create the right uh, marketing message to um, to accentuate the 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 positive facts of the uh, of the asset. Um, it's you know. I say, well, if I'm, I'm talking to, to a group of folks who aren't very familiar with the industry, I would say liken it to commercial real estate or even real estate where your agent or your professional is going to come in and look at your building or look at your house and um, kind of take it apart, list the positives, list the negatives, um, kind of put it together in the most valuable light. And, and what we do, this is just a, a technology-driven uh, uh, industry with the geosciences and the, and the engineering, um, you know, we are going to put uh, the the asset in front of the the right strategic buyer 
the companies that are um, operating and acquiring assets uh, in that area, um, whether they're uh, new startups with fresh uh, private equity capital or they're, you know, a 100-year-old major, um, we are going to get that get that asset in front of the right group. Okay, and you do A and D services. You you list out. You choose a format. You do the data collection and evaluation. Mm-hmm. You'll help close the deal. Um, for people who don't know anything about this, let's just start A&D. What does it, tell them what A&D is all about. A- A&D is acquisition and divestiture. So that's the buying and selling of oil and gas properties. Um, producing properties, non-producing, non-producing leasehold, um, royalties overrides. Uh, a- A&D is a... Um, cornerstone to the industry of oil and gas. Um, small uh, small companies have you know found it uh, vital to monetize assets, uh, to expand and grow, and larger companies have found it um, absolutely necessary to clean uh, clean house, keep their portfolio of producing assets efficient. Um, by monetizing the lesser performing assets and rolling those, uh, rolling those dollars into um, higher yield, more effective, p- perhaps newer exploration. Um, but well, so, has it changed now that the now that we've seen hopefully the worst of the downturn behind yeah. us? Let's just say theoretically that that is the case, and we're not mm-hmm. going backward. How does that change your job? Hopefully it makes me busier, right? right? Um, but what what we are seeing now in this in the downturn is oil and gas companies are needing to to um, clean house, become more efficient. Um, to stay take alive. A, take right. Yeah. Take a look at take a look at where their operating expenses are higher. Um, monetize those assets, move them out, um, and, and redeploy capital in more efficient, more efficient areas. We're, we see that as we, you know, ho- hopefully climb out of this uh, trough, this downturn, um, you know, A&D, acquisition divestiture activity, increases. Um, uh, larger deals um, are on the horizon, and smaller kind of portfolio cleanup projects are uh, are certainly starting to pick up what what are your key basins right now where are you seeing the activity well everybody is focusing on the on the permian it's it all comes down to the economics where can oil and gas companies uh, produce and sell the oil um, and and make a profit in a 35 40 45 or 50 dollar price environment we've seen over the last year and a half, uh, the more expensive basins, uh, you know, like the Bakken, um, slow down tremendously. The Eagleford, um, Permian has always, you know, kind of maintained its its luster, its shine. And um, for everyone who's listening, Permian basically think West, West Texas, Texas mm-hmm. Midland, Odessa, and then spreading out over across New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So that that's the most fit to survive. Is that safe to say? Uh, play in America. Well, it's certainly surviving. Our our industry is is um, is is surviving, but you know it, it is in a downturn. 
So th there are a lot of rigs not running. Uh, most aren't. I, gosh, we can look at the look at the current rig count. I, I think North America is at 450 rigs running now. Um, you know, we were at four four times that two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so and that's and that's evident anywhere. Um, but uh, but the economics still work in in a number of places, and uh, it really it's asset by asset. If it's a if it's a shallower, uh, lower cost well, whether it's gas or oil, then then it makes sense economically. And and if it's a, a bigger, uh, more expensive, deeper well, then then it doesn't make sense. However, um, in in areas uh, uh, you asked about basins, the Marcellus up in the Northeast is you know they they drill phenomenal big gas wells there and even though the gas price is, is low and has been uh, for quite a while um, it's still commercial uh, to drill some of those big big wells that that uh, uh, serve the uh, larger cities in the northeast and the midwest um, really good news for the yeah. mineral owners in pennsylvania and west virginia and sure. those areas and they really need the help they're still they are still selling a lot of gas yeah no doubt yeah we're talking with Chase Morris, and he heads up business development for the oil and gas asset clearinghouse for the Dallas-Fort Worth area and also Midland-Odessa area. Check out what they do at ogclearinghouse.com, ogclearinghouse.com. And there you can check out their brochure, sale day catalog, auctions they have coming up. Uh, in fact, one just uh, June 9 and another one coming up in August. And if you are in the market, if you're one of those folks, if you're an approved buyer, Chase approves sure. you, you're allowed right. to show up. That's right. All right, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. listening to the Jackie Daly Show. Join us online, JackieDaly.com, on Facebook and on Twitter, at Jackie Daly Show, and on demand 24-7, wherever you are, on your commute, on the treadmill, whatever you're doing, you can hear all the shows back to July on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You know, energy does not get the attention it deserves in every single presidential election. I have watched, I don't even know how many presidential debates. I haven't missed many since I was 15, I think. Uh, back then, it was Clinton and Bush Sr. Um, and I was 15. I was already into it. Well, one thing I notice is that energy just does not get a lot of attention in these debates. People don't relate to a lot of energy issues other than gas prices and the importation of foreign oil. Those are two issues that you hear come up over and over again. Um, but they barely get glossed over. They're not very sophisticated. Um, I think maybe... As time has gone on, people have shown a greater interest, but unfortunately it's because of all of the misinformation that they're getting from certain environmental activists. So they're getting all worked up about Keystone XL pipeline or hydraulic fracturing, fracking, or things like this, and they're unfortunately coming out on the wrong side of these issues. I mean, it really, the industry has not done a good job at educating the public on the true science behind oil and gas production. Very unfortunate. So I'm working on that. Obviously, there are a handful of us who are dedicated to telling the truth 
about energy. Anytime I see any impact on public opinion, particularly vis-a-vis the election, I want to share it with you. Okay, so I've run across an excellent piece in pollingreport.com. And really what they do is compile polls done by Gallup, CBS, ABC, Washington Post, Bloomberg, whatever, uh, on particular issues. So you can see just about everything that's been polled over the past hmm, two, three, three years um, on an issue. So I pulled energy. And I'm going to share with you just some of what they show here. And I'm going to give you the dates because... These things change dramatically over time. Hydraulic fracturing or fracking being an excellent example. If you look at the polls on fracking, starting with about 2012, it just keeps getting worse and worse. The number of people who've been buying into the claims from films like Gasland, which have been so thoroughly debunked, so thoroughly debunked. But it's like Mark Twain said, you know, I'm going to botch this verbatim, but basically... You know, lies will make, I don't know, four, four circles around the earth before the truth even gets its boots laced up. And so this is the problem, right? If you don't get out in front of it, um, you've got trouble. Here's an example. All right, we're looking at a Gallup poll. This is March 2nd, 2016. So this year, question, do you favor or oppose hydraulic fracturing or fracking as a means of increasing the production of natural gas and oil in the U.S.? Okay, 2016. People had 36% favoring, 51% opposed, 13% unsure. A year before, you had 40% favoring, 40% opposed, 19% unsure. So in other words, we lost about 10% there uh, who who went over 11% actually uh, to oppose. That is not a good development whatsoever. All right, moving on to... CBS News, New York Times poll. This is November 2015. Over 1,000 adults nationwide. Question, in order to help reduce global warming, would you be willing or not willing to pay more for electricity if it were generated by renewable sources like solar or wind energy? In 2015, 55% said they were willing. 43% said they're not willing in 2007. 75% said they were willing. 20% said they were not willing. That is kind of interesting because you might remember that we had on um, a friend of mine, it was Mike from MWR Strategies, did extensive polling on energy issues and basically said, okay, would you be willing to pay more? This exact question uh, on your electric bill to transition from traditional fuels, cheap, affordable, reliable fuels that do not produce rolling blackouts, like you know, let's say natural gas or coal, nuclear, uh, would you be willing to pay more money to transition to solar and wind? And an overwhelming number of people, it actually surprised me how many people answered, yes, I would. And then he says, okay, give me a number. How much more are you willing to pay every month on your energy bill to achieve that? The mean answer, the average, was $10. $10, okay, that tells me, whoa, there's a huge disconnect between what people perceive is the cost of making transitions in energy versus the actual cost. Keep your eye on this clean power plan, okay? Because basically that's what it's trying to do. And uh, what you're going to find, (laughs) you're not talking about $10. We're talking about an increase in your bill, depending on where you are, of perhaps 30%, maybe more. You're talking about hundreds of dollars. You're going to be paying extra. And by the way, 
The government never tells you the truth about what things are going to cost. I worked on Capitol Hill for seven years. I don't care what the Congressional Budget Office says, the General Accounting Office, the economists they hire. Whatever they tell you the cost is going to be, you can probably double or triple it. You never get the full story. So, you know, while it's 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 kind of like this isn't a Christmas list for Santa, right? It's 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 not this abstract thing. It's great to say that you don't mind paying more, but you really need to study the price tag and know what you mean by that. Are you willing to give up the family vacation this year in exchange for this? Are you willing to watch your kids, you know, college fund uh, never, never grow because you're paying for this? Um, and if you're in the lower income segment, really, you're going to get hit the hardest. You're the one who's going to see the percentage of your income devoted to energy uh, go up dramatically. You're going to be making decisions like, am I going to pay this electric bill? Or am I going to go get that health care procedure I desperately need? Or am I going to buy the kids shoes and clothes for school? You know, these are the kinds of choices you're going to be making. So keep that in mind. I mean, for it's, it's bad enough for, uh, for middle class folks. But, but these the choices I just described, pretty realistic. Okay, moving on to an ABC News Washington Post poll. January 2015, 500 adults. Obama has said he will not decide whether to approve a new oil pipeline from Canada to Texas until a review has determined whether it's in the national interest. Republicans in Congress are working on a law to authorize the pipeline without Obama's approval. Okay, so obviously this is past tense. Okay. Which side do you support? Should the pipeline be authorized now or should the review be completed before deciding? This makes me want to pull my hair out. Why am I sharing this with you? Because pipelines are the most basic, basic, basic. I mean, the fact that this has become a, a political hot potato in football is absurd. Two million miles of pipelines run beneath our feet. We've been living with them all of our lives, and so did our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. There's nothing to fear from pipelines. The Keystone is the most advanced pipeline on Earth with 59 technical upgrades to make it the safest pipeline ever, so much more safe than the crude by rail that we have now. Okay, if you oppose this pipeline, you're, you, you are harming the environment. And you know what? I'll do a whole show on that if I have to. Fight me, fight me online. If I get enough fights online, I'll, I'll bring it back to the show and make the case for you. Here's what they said. Do you want to authorize the pipeline now? Only 34% of the people said yes. Complete the review first. 61% said yes. You know what's scary about that? There had already been five reviews. I think it was the sixth review we're talking about. So 61% of the people did not know really about this issue at all. All right, so they didn't realize this had already been done. It's been talked about and talked about. Um, They would never answer that way if they knew that this is the sixth review. So I guess I'm saying... Gosh, there's a loud vocal minority that is the fringe environmental movement, and they want you to believe they're a chorus of millions, and they make you believe that just everyone on earth is with them and opposes this dangerous pipeline. Barbara Boxer calls it the Keystone Extra Dangerous, Extra Lethal Pipeline, because it's Keystone XL. It's probably the safest pipeline ever, ever designed. So how scary is that? Now you've got 61% of the people who aren't happy with moving forward. I, I mean... This is kind of depressing. Do I keep reading or do we go Do we go get a beer now? Okay, I'm going to keep going. Here it is. How likely do you think it is that the Keystone XL would harm the environment? Very likely, somewhat likely, not at all. Um, 2015 and 2014, the numbers were almost identical. Almost identical, very little change. 23% in 2015 said very likely. 32% said somewhat likely. 26% not very likely. not at all likely. So I'm in the 13%. There are only 13% of people who've actually studied this issue and understand the truth and the science behind the Keystone XL pipeline. 
These are not good numbers. Let's move on to a different issue. Okay. USA Today poll, Princeton survey, November 2014. Now, you know what? Skip that. It's more about pipelines. This is too depressing. Let's keep, <laughs> let's keep moving on. Let's keep on keeping on. Here is a Pew Research Center USA Today poll from 2013. 1,500 adults. Which of the following do you think should be the more important priority for addressing America's energy supply? 2013, this is post-shale boom. All right, so we're on an ocean of natural gas, number one natural gas producer on Earth. No chance we're running out. Peak oil is a long-forgotten discussion. Question, do you think we should be, you know, focusing on developing alternative sources such as wind, solar, and hydrogen, or expanding exploration and production of oil, coal, and natural gas? 2013, 54%. Wind, solar, hydrogen, 34%. Oil, coal, natural gas, 7%. Give equal priority. And those numbers, uh, the wind and solar numbers actually came down by 9% from 2011 to 2013. And oil, coal, and natural gas actually went up. 5% more people actually said we should focus there. So apparently some people have learned that there's been a shale boom in this country. So that's good news. CBS News, New York Times poll, 2012, about 1,000 adults. Is the price of gasoline something a president can do a lot about, or is that beyond the president's control? These are uh, 2012. 48% said he can do a lot about it. 43% says it's beyond his control. 9% is not sure. Okay, that's either true or it's not. Uh, so you've got about a perfect split almost right down the middle in this country. What this tells me is there's not a lot of energy literacy out there in the United States. I mean, there's a huge need not only to understand where we are. I mean, I don't even know. I, I'm concerned that at least half of the people don't know that the United States is an energy powerhouse. We're a superpower with energy. And the good news of that hasn't gone out. And even of those who do uh, follow this or understand it, they have an unnatural, uh, irrational fear built into them about the fact that we have achieved this status as the number one natural gas producer on earth. And on a, on a good year when the prices are right, we can outproduce Saudi Arabia, we can outproduce Russia. This is the first time, you know, in, in our lifetimes, well, okay, I don't know how old you are, but it's the first time in a long time uh, that we have been able to move into the top position. And, you know, the president really can only just stand in the way, as far as I'm concerned. If the government just gets out of the way, we can take care of the rest. Let the people in Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana figure this out. Let the people in North Dakota figure this out. We know how to do this. And so... Uh, the price of gasoline is directly related to uh, the price of oil. You understand that, right? And, you know, it's all about production, and it's all about making sure that we are controlling the energy supply and not permitting people around the world to uh, call the shots for us with momentary disruptions and dust-ups among a contentious bunch that can't get along. So the more we rely on us, the better off we are. All right, my job is energy education. I can see I have my work cut out for me. That's what this polling is all about. That's what it proves Thank you for listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Those of you who listen to this show know more about energy. All right, I'm going to go all the way. Then listeners of any other show, tell me where else you go to get the information that you get on Jackie Daly. You're listening to Jackie Daly Show. Join us online at JackieDaly.com, on Facebook, and on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show.
listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Join us online on Facebook and on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show. And you can subscribe and get updates on the show, alerts on the show from iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher on demand. That's where all the past shows live from July 2015 forward. So I want to send a big thank you and a shout out to all of the terrific people in Midland, Odessa, who hosted me last week there for a full day of Jackie Daly events. They had me booked solid, back to back. It was wonderful. Met as many people as I could. It was basically starting out at 9 a.m., which, by the way, couldn't make it because the Texas storms, which are legendary, kept me in the Dallas-Fort Worth area the night before. All flights from Dallas to Midland canceled, so I had to quickly um, quickly regain stability and, and make a new plan. And so I went out there uh, early in the morning. So my first interview on KWEL, K-W-E-L, happened via phone, unfortunately. The latter ones were in studio with Dave Casey, uh, first one with Craig Anderson. And from there um, was a guest of my friend Chase Morris, who you heard on the show this week at the Adam meeting. That's A-D-A-M, oil and gas professionals, making it happen out there in Midland. After that, I had a uh, press conference 2.30 at the First Capital Bank building, a reception for the Jackie Daly Show, and then I threw out the first pitch at the Midland Rockhounds game, which, you know, really was... (laughs) Excited. That excited me more than anything I've probably done for the Jackie Daly show. I was really, really happy that they invited me to do that because I played ball for many, many years growing up. So all the great people who made that happen, you know who you are. You are Kimberly Smith and Kristen Underwood, Janet Williams Pollard, Graham Pollard, Craig Anderson, Mrs. Anderson, Dave Casey, so many of you. So many of you who worked very hard to put that all together, and I am very thankful and grateful for each and every one of you. You made it special. I love going to Midland. I love getting on a plane. It's just one hour from Dallas-Fort Worth to Midland-Odessa, and I like to go out there just for the day, just to hit the ground, do it all, and see everyone, and uh, really some of the finest, finest Texans. They vote right. They think right. They love their freedom. I just, I take to it like a duck to water. So thank you, Midland Odessa, and I look forward to the next time. I'm going to spend more time out there. I'm out there at least quarterly. So I'll give you a heads up when I'm on my way. Keep listening to KWEL for updates on Jackie Daly appearances. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. We'll be right back. <laughs> 